Thank you. And I realized, well, one thing we realized this morning is you don't always realize you needed something until it's too late, like a snow shovel this morning. We probably should have thought about that. Uh, ironically, we sold them uh, when we left. Well, I think we just left them in North Dakota because we didn't know the Lord would ever call us back to a place with snow, or we just thought we wouldn't go. Uh, and apparently, it would have been good to be prepared. Just as It probably would have been good to prepare a little entry speech as uh, one of the elders here, and uh, it slipped my mind until just now when I was like, oh, I probably should have prepared something to say. Um, outside of the sermon... Uh, I, I guess what I want to say is thank you. Thank you for uh, calling me and my family to be able to serve you. Uh, we have made quite an entrance or a memorable day with this snow, which we will uh, never forget. Uh, we are thankful to be here. Um, and if there's, I sent out an email. Uh, if there is any way I can serve you, please email, contact, call, whatever it is. It, we don't just have to meet and discuss theology. We can. I love to. If you just want to meet for coffee so I can get to know you a little bit more about your family, please, uh, we can do that. Or pizza, that's good too. Uh, whatever you want to do, if you just you know, want me to come over, stop by, say hi, or if you want to meet to pray or counsel, anything, please, I am available to serve you. It is not a burden, it is a joy, and that's why I accepted the call that you guys extended to me and my family to be able to serve you. That's what my heart believes an elder is called to do. Um, and that's what I believe my family is called to do, is to be able to serve you. And you guys have served us very well thus far. Uh, we thank you for that, and we thank you for helping us arrive. And okay, let's uh, jump into the text. If you did see the email, we are going to start uh, well, I put for the next few months in my sermon uh, a series on Philippians, but it's the same amount of chapters as Colossians, and Colossians took me eight months to do four chapters, so I don't know when we'll finish, just for the next, you know, three years. Uh, we'll be in Philippians, uh, and, and just looking at what the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to them. We'll begin today, and today is going to be a little bit different. It's just going to be an overview and a background of this letter. Uh, we'll also examine some of the major themes and elaborate on those a little bit. Uh, and finally, we'll close by reading the letter to the Philippians in its entirety. So I like to do that uh, with the uh, beginning of a sermon series and with the end. I've never read more than just four chapters, so if I ever preach through like Genesis here, that'll be a long day. Uh, I've never had the courage to do that either, so it's, it's good for Pauline epistles. We'll see if I gain courage to do with larger chunks of books. But reading large portions of Scripture uh, is a practice that not only I love to do, but I think we also have biblical warrant as the church to practice it. Uh, in the end of Colossians, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Colossae to read the same letter he wrote them in front of the other surrounding churches. Not only that, in Nehemiah 9.3, they met and listened to the book of the law be read for a quarter of the day. In Deuteronomy 31.10-13, Moses commanded Israel at the end of every seven years at the appointed time in the year of remission of debt... During the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes before the Lord your God at the place He will choose, you are to read this law in the hearing of all Israel. Therefore, assemble the people, men, women, children, and foreigners within your gates, 
so that they may listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and to follow carefully all the words of this law. There's more passages where they meant to do that, but, and we don't have to do it exactly like they did it. But reading God's Word in large portions, as we'll read today, uh, it's beneficial. It's good for us. And we can see that God's people have even been commanded to do that. Even Paul wrote to the, uh, Timothy and said, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So let's start with a little background, and once we get through that, and then the themes, the major themes of Philippians, then we'll close by reading it in its entirety. The author is quite obvious. It's the Apostle Paul. We learn he first visited Philippi in Acts 16, and we're given a little background of the city. Luke writes in Acts 16.12, From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. So we see that the, uh, Luke was with Paul at the time they arrived to Philippi. They tell us it was in Macedonia, a leading district, a leading Roman colony. And the city itself was actually named after Philip II, who was the dad of Alexander the Great. Philippi was also the location where Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius after they assassinated Julius Caesar. Just a few fascinating things about Philippi. I didn't know that until I started this study. And if you ever want to dork out or nerd out a little bit on Philippians, let me know and we can talk about different commentaries, books, or historical things that I read uh, as I'm doing research. I can give you a list of those. You know, let me, let me, open, let me open this in prayer. Like I said, it's a little bit different since I'm not just preaching a, a sermon here, but let me, let me open us in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, as we open up your word, Lord, uh, one insight from Deuteronomy 31 that I saw is they were just to read the law of Moses, the book of the law, and to listen and pay careful attention, Lord, to fear the Lord their God. But it doesn't even say anything about preaching. It just says hearing your word read taught them and, and created fear of the Lord within them, God. Lord, I, I pray that today. I pray that your word, which we believe is divinely inspired by your spirit, would create us to carefully listen to your word and to love the Son of God and to love the Father, Son, and Spirit as our triune God who has adopted us and redeemed us and given us life, Lord, and would call us to, to live a life that, as Paul says to the Philippians, is worthy of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord. Help us as we study through this book together to understand what you would have us do as a church at Cornerstone, Lord, to be faithful to you, to ourselves, our families, and the community that we live in. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The date and location. It's hard to know the exact date. Historians point to the letter being written around late 50s to early 60s, first century A.D., the city he wrote the letter from is also highly debated, and the main three arguments, or where they're argued, the locations, is Rome, Caesarea, and Ephesus. After reading the many arguments and different perspectives on who thinks 
Paul wrote from one of those locations, I, I became more confused than when I, you know, even before I began to study. So I really don't have a definitive answer, and it didn't appear that they did either. Uh, so rather than bore you with those possibilities, let me just state for the record, tradition has been that Paul wrote this letter from Rome. But it's just, it's just tradition. The only location Paul, the apostle, is actually interested in us knowing where he wrote it from is that he wrote it from prison. And that'll be important when we get into the letter. Audience, Paul wrote the church to Philippi, to the Philippians. We see that in verse 1 of the first chapter. To all the holy ones or saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. The Apostle Paul is writing to a local church, and he's writing to their leaders, the overseers and the deacons. He wrote to Philippi. It could be a reason that someone raises an objection, but if this letter was meant for the church in Philippi, why do we treat it like it was written to us? Right? In other words, why should we as cornerstone, submit to the teachings of a letter written 2,000 years ago to a local church in Macedonia? I think it's a good objection. It's something I was thinking about. Why? It's a good question. Why do we submit to it? Why would it have authority in our lives? For one, the New Testament, which includes Philippians, is 27 books written by the apostles. We refer to them also as the apostolic teachings, or we refer to the New Testament as the apostolic teachings, because the New Testament is what the apostles taught. The apostles were commissioned by Christ to teach the church all that he had commanded, which is our New Testament. And finally, possibly most substantially or very substantial, all of the New Testament is divinely inspired scripture. It's God-breathed which means the apostles who wrote the New Testament, which again includes Philippians, they wrote it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the supreme authority, which commands us to obey these scriptures, to submit to these scriptures, to live faithfully to the New Testament and these scriptures, the ultimate authority doesn't come from the apostles. Ultimately, it comes from God himself. The structure of the letter. We can see by the way that he addresses, or we will see by the way he addresses the Philippians multiple times as beloved or dear ones, loved ones, brothers and sisters. He uses affectionate terms to address them. And he expresses his love for them throughout the entire letter. He's writing a letter to his friends. It's a friendship letter. <laughs> if, you, if you think about it, have you ever seen an irate person at a restaurant or like a retail store as they were leaving and they, they were upset about the service or about something and they yelled out, I'm a letter writer, you know, and like they, oh, you're going to get in trouble about this. They typically don't address that letter or email as dear ones or beloved. And that's what Paul is doing to the Philippians. They're his friends. From what I hear, I assume that if David wrote a letter, it would be the same way. He loved you guys. Now, the structure of the letter itself, 
is summarized wonderfully by Gordon Fee. Fee is a theologian who recently just went home to be with the Lord. In his Philippian commentary, he says, Ask any number of people to name their favorite Pauline letter. That's a letter written by Paul. And the majority will say Philippians. For good reason. Whereas we meet an erudite Paul in Romans, a bombastic Paul in Galatians, a sometimes caustic Paul in 2 Corinthians, and a sometimes baffling Paul in 1 Corinthians, here we find a very personal and warm human being who pours out a heart of affection for his friends in Philippi. In short, many of us like Philippians because we like the Paul we meet here. He goes on to say, not only so, but the letter is full of wonderfully memorable passages. Who among believers in Christ does not know and love such grand Pauline moments as for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? Or for whom have I suffered the loss of all things for the surpassing worth of knowledge, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Or, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. One of the top refrigerator theology magnets that we see. He didn't say that. I said that. Sorry, don't, don't quote him in that one. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Or any number of clauses or phrases from the Christ story in chapter 2, 6-11, through 11, which we'll go through a little bit this morning. And the Paul narrative in 3, 4 through 14. And then Fee goes on to say, but on the other hand, ask the same people to trace the flow of thought of this letter, as in how does the letter work, as it were, and one draws a blank. Often even among scholars who insist that the letter is too personal to analyze in that way. For most of us, Philippians simply reads better in parts than as a whole. So we have the interesting ambiguity that this best loved of Paul's letters is also one of the least understood as a letter, as a whole. We know it's many pieces, and we have a good feel for what it's about, but we are less sure how the pieces fit together. And. So in other words, what Fee, what Gordon Fee and many other scholars are trying to say is that Paul's letter basically just feels kind of like it jumps all over the place. And therefore, it's hard to pin down a natural flow of thought from Paul. And I, I agree with that assessment, but I, I think there are some helpful segments of the letter, words that he uses and thoughts that he uses that actually help us thread it together, mainly joy. Throughout the letter, Paul uses the noun joy and the verb rejoice 14 times. Yet when we, when we read through the letter, when he mentions joy, it's typically in regard to suffering. And, and I don't think, after reading this letter, that it's a, just a coincidence. I think joy and suffering are what binds this letter together. It's a good practice to, to try to summarize a book uh, in, in a sentence or in a phrase. When I was in seminary, one of my Hebrew professors, uh, he made us summarize 1 Samuel into one sentence before the sem semester uh, began and after the semester finished. While we all had different answers, I still think it was a very helpful exercise. I still like to do it to this day. 
As I've studied Philippians so far, I would summarize this letter as this. Focusing on the person and work of Christ will build unity in the church, cause the Christian to rejoice, and create joy within those who are suffering. So again, what is this letter about? What is my summary of this letter? I think, what is Paul's main focus? Focusing on Jesus Christ will build unity with us. It'll cause us to rejoice, and it'll create joy as we suffer or when we suffer. We'll see when we get done in two years if that's what I still have and what you have. All right, major themes. I'm just going to do three major, three, three major themes that I wanted to point out. Number one, the person and work of Christ. Though a short passage, Philippians 2, 6-11, has some of the most wonderful Christology in the entire Bible. Christology is simply the knowledge of Christ and His work, such as His life on earth, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. That's all Christology means, to study Christ, to study Him and what He did. We look at... Philippians 2, 6-7, through 7, Paul says, Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, Christ emptied Himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. That's, it's deep. What is Paul saying? He's saying that Jesus is two natures in one glorious person. We're going to get deep into Christology as we walk through this letter. Today, just an overview. Paul's saying that Jesus Christ is both God and man. He explains Jesus, who by nature is God, became a human, assumed a human nature as well. But when he became a human, when he was born in Bethlehem, he didn't lose his godness. He still remained God, but now he was also man in one person. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. That's the person of Christ. Verses 8 explain part of the work of Christ. Starting in verse 7, When he had come as a man, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Why, why did he come as a man? He, well, one, he came to fulfill the law, which we were unable to do. And he was completely obedient to God, which Paul says here, which we were unwilling to do. And it's, it, Paul says that Christ's obedience led him to the cross where he died for our disobedience. Here we have the gospel message. Why did the Son of God, why did God the Son come to earth? Why did he become a human? Why did he assume a human nature? He did it in order to die for us who are sinners. The sinless died for sinners. That's why he became a human. When you look at Hebrews, it says he didn't become an angel. He only became a man. He came to redeem humans. That's it. That's the message. That's what you are called to believe. That's what we're called to believe. That's what we place faith in, that the Son of God became a man in order to die for our sins. And in verses 9-11, through 11, we're Paul explains that God accepted His sacrifice. And we know that God accepted His sacrifice because Jesus didn't remain in the grave. Jesus rose from the dead. 
For this reason, Paul says, starting in verse 9, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ, Paul says, went lowly to the grave in humility and obedience to the cross. But he rose in exaltation to the throne of heaven where he sits now. His exaltation is partly known as the ascension, as he ascended to heaven, and it has many ramifications for us. I just want to fixate on one specific one today, what that means for us. Who, who cares that Jesus rose from the grave and ascended on high to the throne of heaven, the throne of the universe? What does that mean for us? Gospelly, the Apostle Paul says, the exaltation of Jesus means that he is inferior to no one and superior to all. And whether or not we submit to him as Lord before we die, every single one of us will kneel before him when he returns. And for some, when he returns, for some it will be terror on that day. And that reality should inflame our hearts to appeal to our community to repent and believe in the risen King. That the reality that one day there's not going to be a second chance. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day we are called to repent and believe in the Son of God who died and rose again. But notice in this letter, Paul, Paul doesn't say, as we move throughout the letter and transition back into the letter, the Apostle Paul doesn't say the goal of our faith or the goal of faith is to stay out of hell. That's not what Paul says. He never says, hey, the reason we believe is so we can stay out of hell. Paul says the goal of our faith is to know God. The goal of our faith is to know God through Christ. He says the, the goal of our faith, loved one, is to be with our Lord. That's the goal. That's the message that we preach. It's not repent and believe so you can stay out of hell. It's repent from your sins and believe that the God who created you also sent his son to die for you. And you can know him. And there's nothing greater than him. That is our message. And he can set you free from all sin. I think most everyone in here heard my testimony and knows he set me free. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ who has been reborn by the Holy Spirit, you too have been set free from the power of sin. Paul says, verse 21, chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ. And then he says, which is far better? In verse 8, chapter 3, he says, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul considers everything a loss. There's nothing in this world that could entice Paul more than knowing Christ Jesus. I want to get there. Because there's plenty of things in my heart that entice me more on a daily basis than just wanting to know Christ Jesus. But I want to be there. And I don't have the verse marked down, but I know in the book Paul says, not that I've matured or not that I've arrived there, but I have been taken hold 
of Christ Jesus. And that's my prayer for all of us, that we would be taking hold of Christ Jesus. And Paul says, just flat out, my goal is to know Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 10. So we don't, we don't study Christology to simply attain knowledge or to look smart. Paul says we study about Christ, what He did, who He is. We learn about God. We study the Bible. We study the letter to the Philippians so that we can know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on a more intimate and deeper level and to know what He would call us to do on this earth. Which is good, because the second point is unity in the local church. I struggle this week if I should bring up voting or not, you know. I think one of the first questions I was asked is, how are you on politics from the pulpit? And that's tough, because in my heart, I'm probably different than I am from the pulpit in my politics. And we talked about that in the elder meeting. I don't want to be the way I am in my own heart. The way I want to be is, is what Paul says in verse 27. Just one thing as citizens of heaven. I want to remember that my citizenship, that our citizenship is not in Leavenworth or Wenatchee or uh, Kashmir. Our citizenship is truly in heaven. We are temporarily here until Christ returns. That's what I want to believe and I want to remember. And when I vote, I don't care who sits in the White House or the Senate or uh, governorship, whatever it is. What I care is that who sits on the throne of heaven. And Paul says that Jesus Christ sits there because he was exalted there because he's the only one worthy to call Lord and King. That's where I want to be. And that's where I want us to get to. Paul says, just as one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. How worthy has the church in America shown each other over the divide of politics in the last three years? And, and I'm just as guilty as anyone else that I will call out for. When Paul says, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. It's unity. We're, we're called as cornerstone, as, as a church here. A letter to cornerstone, a letter to the Philippians. We're called also to live a life worthy of the gospel. And, and in this verse, in verse 27, Paul tells us what being united means. It means standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together as one for the gospel. And if you remember in the Gospels, Jesus taught us the dangers of division. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And loved ones, neither can any church. We have to become intentional to become and remain united. We don't get a pass on unity just read the Bible. We never get a pass. The Lord never says, well, you have to unite on all these things. Hey, but on this specific one, you guys are allowed to be divided. It doesn't. But, but, but then there's the reality that we're all humans, and we do become divided at times. That's going to happen. 
So what do we do? What do we do when we become divided? The best thing about Philippians is Paul actually counsels that in chapter 4. The way that we reconcile when we become divided. He says, and, for, and not divided with a community, I'm talking about within the church, within Cornerstone. He says in chapter 4 too, I urge Eudea uh, and I urge Syntec to agree in the Lord. Apparently, there was some dispute, I'm not sure what it is, within the Philippian church among these two women. He doesn't address a specific issue, but he does tell the church how to handle a dispute among these women, among these members. What did he say? Sit them down and urge them to agree in the Lord. We can't agree on everything. I don't even think we have to agree on everything. But what the Lord says we must agree on, we have to agree together on that. That's how we can remain united. And on some of the other stuff, we can just be charitable and say the Bible's just not specific on that. I mean, agreeing in the Lord, it doesn't even say what that means, right? And it's, it, pro it sounds easier than it is. Oh, we'll just agree in the Lord. All right, we'll go meet with elders and agree in the Lord. I mean, it's, it sounds easier because in order for us to agree in the Lord, we're going to have to do something that goes against our sinful flesh. We're going to have to become humble. <laughs> the great, one of the greatest weapons against the church is our pride. And there's not much uglier that brings shame and reproach on the name of Jesus Christ more than the church's arrogance and pride. I assume that's exactly why Paul, he, he writes to the Philippians in chapter 2. They, 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 it, look, Philippians, cornerstone. If you want to be of one accord, if you want to be of one mind, one spirit, then have the same attitude of Jesus Christ, which is humility. That's what he says. If you want to be concerned about others more than yourself, if you want to be united, be humble. He did not consider being God something to be exploited, but instead humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the humility of Christ. That's what we are to seek after. I guess the introduction was a bit more preachier than I thought it was going to be. Preachers got to preach. But, but just so you know, this sermon was preached to my heart by the Lord Himself as I study it. It's my pride and arrogance, not yours, that I recognize in my sermon preparation. It's mine. And I think if I struggle with this, probably some of you do too, if not all. Imagine saying, I don't struggle with pride. Well, it's so hard to be humble. It's hard. I think this is the, when you vote, however you vote, honor Christ. That's what you need to do. That's the command of the Bible. Honor Christ in your voting. And if you do that and you believe you've done that, that's my counsel. I'm only saying that because Tuesday's a big day for that. Normally, that would, this would, the sermon point would fall dead pretty quick for another two to four years. 
Okay, final theme. Joyful suffering. And for time's sake, I won't elaborate on this as much as the other two. I just want to point out one verse in the first chapter uh, of chapter 1, sorry, uh, verse 29. The Apostle Paul says, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, so our faith has been granted and appointed, but then Paul says, but also to suffer for him. Your faith has been appointed by God, but what else has? Paul says, suffering. Suffering has. Paul says, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're going to experience in the future, the Word of God says, it's all been determined and appointed by God already. And it's for our good. And for His glory. And therefore, we are called to walk faithfully in His will. But I'll admit as much as anyone, suffering doesn't feel good. That's why it's called suffering. And I pray that none of us have to face suffering alone. If anyone's going through suffering alone right now without someone in Cornerstone bearing that burden, reach out. You don't have to reach out to everyone. Reach out to someone. We want to bear each other's burdens. And I pray, I pray that you'll find joy in your suffering. But in order to do that, in order to find joy in suffering, I'm completely convinced that the first step, the very first step to finding joy in suffering is this verse right here in verse 29. It's acknowledging whatever you're going through has been appointed by God. When you can believe that God is sovereign even in your suffering, you know that nothing is out of His control. And while it may not just calm the suffering or anxiety 100%, it is comforting to know that it is from God, and it's for our good, and it's for His glory. As I said in the beginning, if I had to summarize the book in one sentence, it would be, focusing on the person and work of Christ will build unity in the church, it will cause the Christian to rejoice, and create joy within those who are suffering. Let me close by reading the letter to the Philippians. If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians 1. If not, just listen. They didn't all have Bibles when the Law of Moses was read, so they would just listen. Uh, no combination for either. I will be reading from an ESV this morning just for the translation. The letter of Paul to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become throughout the whole imperial guard, become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on his name, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will, genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore." that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him 
and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have obtained this or are already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and count your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Final chapter. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntec to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty of hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know That in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply 
every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Heavenly Father, as we close uh, this introduction into the letter of the Philippians, Lord, (laughs) just reading through, there are many passages, segments, Lord, to, to pray from, to pray through, Lord. God, I pray that you use this letter to get glory from our lives, to call us to a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to to live a life of following our Lord who gave up his life for us, who became obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. God, that we, we would not be filled with complaining or grumbling, but we would dwell and focus on whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is worthy, Lord. God, I don't know anything more worthy than our Lord Jesus Christ or the triune God who has saved us, redeemed us, Lord, and given us life. God, I pray that we would all grow together in the grace of the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Philippians did, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.